Oh, wow. That's, that's a <laughs> terrible question. That's hard to answer. I'll say. Welcome to an episode of Roadmap, a podcast for aspiring product managers that wish to break into the industry. I'm Thomas Chu, a student at Cal Berkeley and your host. Today, we have Carol with us, who is a VP of product at Vivante Health. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Good. Uh, just as a start, can you give our audience a brief introduction of yourself and your background? Sure. Hi, my name is Carol Tiger. I'm the VP of product of Vivante Health, as Thomas already mentioned. Before Vivante, I was a product consultant and I worked for a whole bunch of different companies and a lot of different uh, stages of development. I was working with some startups. I was working with some media agencies. I was working on a big government project. Before that, I was an internal head of product at Spruce, which is a Texas-based startup that's a B2B2C in the marketplace where it offers services to residents of large apartment complexes. Before that, I did product management for Home Depot. I was working for a company called Blinds.com that was bought by the Home Depot. And before that, I did marketing marketing and product at ZocDoc. And before I made it into product management, I was actually a middle school math teacher with Teach for America in New York City. Before we dive in, can you give, um, can you tell us a little bit more about Vivante Health? Uh, what does it offer? And maybe talk about what, you know, exciting projects you're working on right now. Sure. So Vivante Health is a digital health app for digestive health issues. So it's another B2B2C. So we sell to employers and we're available to employees as a free service through their EAP covered by their insurance. It's kind of an interesting dilemma. The people who buy the product aren't the people who use it. So some, um, so for those of for those who are familiar with B2B2C marketplaces, you can see there's a few dilemmas there. Sometimes you might be prioritizing features that aren't intuitive because maybe it's something that the person who's paying for it wants more than the person who's actually using it. Uh, we have a two products outside of the digital app product. One of them is called the GI Mate, which it is a device that you can blow into and it measures the hydrogen coming out from your system. And it measures the undigested carbs in your colon and it helps identify trigger foods. And so we're going through FDA processes now. And what it does is it has a Bluetooth integration with our app and we pull the data down. And so members actually use the app to track food, track symptoms, track stools, and we can use that with our team of dietitians to identify triggers. We have another product called the Gut Check, which is a microbiome. So basically we send something in the mail to our members and they poop in a bag and put it in a tube and send it to a lab and it's identified and we use this data with all the other data that we have about the person to help them reduce their digestive symptoms. Very good, that sounds very interesting. Um, so, so you mentioned earlier that you used to um, you know, teach math in middle school, right? Um, a, a lot of product folks are, are coming from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, I've heard of sales, customer service, operation and engineering. Um, but this is like my first time knowing someone that's, you know, actually started in traditional education. Um, can you share more about your transition from that to product? Like, what was your journey leaning into tech and then eventually landing in the product space? Sure. So I became a math teacher because I was a math major in undergrad. So I was always a little technical. I taught math for three years and I decided to leave because it was challenging to be working within the public education system. And I'll spare you all the details there. I went to graduate school. I got a, a master's in industrial engineering from Columbia in New York. So that meant I took seven engineering courses and five business school courses. During my 
being a student at Columbia, I started an internship at ZocDoc as a data analyst. So I made it in as a marketing data analyst where I sat in the SQL database and I pulled a bunch of queries and I pulled insights. And that's how I made it into tech. So I had this math background that really made it easier for me to get in. And then I made it into product because at the time when I joined ZocDoc, there was no product department. It didn't exist. And marketing was effectively the product managers. And so today the leaders in product, at least one of them came from marketing and was my previous boss. And so I was doing product management. I was in stand-up, managing a backlog, running retrospectives, ma managing two dev teams before I had ever heard of product management or agile. I had no idea that I was doing product when I first started doing it. Awesome, awesome. So is teaching still one of your passions? Because I, I, if I remember correctly, you still teach you know, product management at, at Berkeley and then Rice, right? Correct. So I can't claim to teach at Berkeley. What I do is I coach at Berkeley. So at Berkeley, I coach for participants in an executive MBA um, certificate program. And someone else is running the whole curriculum, but I work with one of the breakout groups and I coach them and I grade their work. So that's what I do with Berkeley. And at Rice, I definitely teach. So at Rice, I created the product management, intro to product management class curriculum from scratch. And I also teach it. And I am about to launch the, so that is a class for MBAs. It's an elective course. And in the spring of 2022, we're going to be launching the first undergraduate intro to product management course. I guess one trick question is that, um, do you enjoy teaching Berkeley folks more or the students at Rice? Oh, wow. That's, that's a terrible <laughs> question. That's hard to answer. I'll say that it's easier on the Berkeley side because I have fewer participants to work with and because I'm sitting on a whole bunch of curriculum. At Rice, it's more rewarding because I'm touching more people and because I'm driving so much more of the experience. That's a good, good answer, I guess. <laughs> and, um, you know, pivoting, pivoting back, um, obviously, you've had a lot of um, experience building products and condensing everything into different courses, right? Um, so in your opinion, what's at the core of product management? Or in other words, um, what makes product management important? Or what makes a good PM? What makes product management important at tech companies is that Product's ability to deliver and prioritize correctly is core to any business being successful. If the operations team wants to do a change, product's going to have to prioritize their backend new integration. If we want to make the members experience better, product's going to have to prioritize identifying what that experience should be. And so product is important. And I think it's pretty hard to argue that it's not important. What makes a good product manager is is being a unicorn, right? So we each have our, our skill, what we're good at and what we're bad at. And I've got all sorts of blind spots, but being able to synthesize qualitative and quantitative data, being able to really empathize with people, being able to understand the business problems, being able to be close enough to the engineering team that you can understand the technical constraints and, under, and start to gain some sort of indication for what's going to be hard or what's going to be easy. And the longer you've worked with this particular tech stack, you'll get better at it. Uh, so the, the hard stuff is the soft skills, building relationships, building rapport, building trust, and being able to cast a vision. You know, before we move into the second part of the episode, I was reading through your, your LinkedIn. And in the summary, you mentioned that you, you somehow managed to work for one week and go on a road trip in the next week during the pandemic. Uh, so can you tell us how you did it and what was the experience like? 
Sure. So I'll, I'll tell you the long story. You can edit it down if you want. I started my travels in 2019 because I had quit my job at Spruce to travel for 14 months with my husband as a part of an extended honeymoon. So we were a four months in, we had spent a month in Israel, a week in Petra, a month in Ethiopia and a month in Kenya, whenever COVID finally hit sub-Saharan Africa and we had to flee, we had to leave and we went to Australia and then they closed down Australia and then we ended up coming home. So I was meant to be traveling for the entire, all of 2020 and a little bit more, but that was interrupted. So whenever I was back in New Mexico, living out of my in-laws basement, I started picking up projects and I was working 40 hours a week, a pretty traditional amount of time. And my husband and I said, like, you know, let's go hit the road. It's let's go hiking. Let's go to Glacier National Park. Let's go do all this stuff. And I said, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to lose out on these clients. I want to keep getting income because it's good to have income. Let me see if I can ask my clients if I can work one week on one week off. And so I, I transitioned all of my clients to a one week on one week off. And luckily they all were tolerant to having the same week on. And so I would work 60 hours a week when I was on. And then when I was off, I was totally off the grid. So we got, I think it was 9,000 miles in in 15 national parks. We were all over the place. We, We basically drove from New Mexico all the way up to Canada across to the Pacific Ocean down until we started hitting where the fires were in California and drove started driving back east and cut through and spent quite a bit of time in Utah. And after we came back from that, then we rented an Airbnb in Utah for three months. And we actually spent three months just in Utah and we went skiing every single weekend. We had an icon pass. And so it was pretty great. So the only way I was able to do the one week on, one week off was with clients. So I wasn't full time with anybody. I was a contractor. Which park was your favorite? out of you know all the places that you've been so there, there's two answers to that and one of them is the olympic national park in washington mm. state it's incredible between the rainforest and all of the beachfront and just being able to camp on the beach is amazing uh but also glacier national Park is breathtaking. You've got the glaciers, the goats, the wildflowers, the epic, epic hikes and stunning, stunning views and lakes. And I love Glacier. So I'd say Glacier and Olympic are my favorites. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a, um, like a Tim Ferriss style work schedule <laughs> that you had going on. Um, so, since we're talking about this, uh, what's your view on the future of work? Because like, I know many tech firms are quite relaxed on whether people you know, go to the office or not. Uh, While some others are saying that, you know, young talents are, you know, missing out so much under this remote environment. So uh, what's your take on that? The company I work at, Vivante, has been remote first since 2016. So I'm working for a remote first company that's always been remote and there's never a question about when are we going back. I'll caveat that by saying the team that we have in Athens has a headquarters and they actually have an office. But for the American side, which I am on, we're totally remote. I think the company is doing very well remote and I don't think that we're suffering from being remote. That said, I personally do really well in person. I, I build better relationships. It's more casual to brainstorm on a whiteboard than it is on a writing something down digitally. I find that being remote, you lose out on some organic sort of ideation and it's a little harder to stay in touch. Now, part of the reason I have trouble staying in touch is I've got not only a remote problem, but I've got a time zone problem. So if I wanted to overlap with my software engineers, I'd have to start my workday at 2 a.m. That's just not going to (laughs) work. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, great. So moving into the second part of the episode, which is the interview stuff. Um, what are some of the common uh, misconceptions that people tend to have about product management? Or um, let me put it in another way. Um, what kind of people would really enjoy being a PM and what kind of person should you know, think more carefully about jumping in? I think one of the most common misconceptions I see is a lot of MBA type, highly driven type A people who want to be super successful view product management as a fast way to have power and to drive strategy in an organization. And they want to become a product manager because of the power associated with it. And the power is earned and you get it eventually, but there is a lot of grunt work up until that point. And even when you have this power, the supposed power, there's a ton of heavy lifting deep in the details that product people will be doing, whether that's manual QA or doing a lot of user testing. And I, I find that the people who are most successful as a product manager and in startups in general are the types of people who would never say, that's not my job. And you don't, they don't view themselves as above a certain task. And I, I do think there's a lot of people who want to get into product management just because it's, it's hot and it pays well. And, it, and it, it's an interesting part of the company to be in, but not necessarily because they have a deep sense of empathy or because they really like to work with a lot of people. Um, and I think that having that empathy and having this roll up your sleeves and do all the work is essential. A lot of you know, non-technical folks are, you know, trying to become PMs as well, right? Um, so, so another question is related to, you know, technicality, um, you know, which is how do you prove that you can work with engineers, um, with all the stakeholders? Um, do you just drop keywords like, you know, APIs here and there throughout the interview, or is there any particular way to, to describe things? I think that from a technical perspective, people who are very, very technical actually have a harder time being successful product managers because they end up getting into the how as opposed to staying in the what. And I think being very technical isn't necessarily something that's a plus whenever you're interviewing for product people. The type of technical skills that I do value when I'm interviewing product people are people who understand databases and they understand how systems talk to each other. Someone who can write SQL and they know what a join is and why a join is important because the construct of being able to write a query and understand how the database works helps you relate to the engineers when they're working with the back end. Let's say if there are two candidates that you're you know interviewing one is like super technical um you know former uh, engineer the other one is more like a mba consultant uh which would you prefer if like everything else stays the same i'm gonna give you a non-answer it depends on the rest of my team mm -hmm. so how many senior engineers do I have to work with that are constantly in elaborations with me? If I have no access to engineering in my brainstorming, then I'm going to be overemphasized to the technical person. How many other consultants do I have in my company? How many like wizards at PowerPoint making and awesome Excel jockeys do I have? And so I'd really look, have to look more holistically at my whole team. And I use product and product hires as a way to balance out needs. Right now I'm actually actively hiring for a product manager. And one of my needs is I don't have an in-house designer. I have a great contract designer. He's awesome. It's a pleasure to work with him, but I am over indexing towards product people who have a design background 
background or um, an affinity for design because I don't have that in house. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. So, uh, in terms of you know just interviews themselves, what would you do or what should uh, aspiring product managers do to prepare for product interviews? And and based on your personal experience, did anything work really well for you, or was there anything that You thought was just a waste of time. Interestingly, at this point, most of my product jobs I've gotten not through interviews, but through connections where people tap me, and I end up interviewing. But after I've been involved in all this stuff, I'd say to prepare for an interview, it's always good to read up on the person who's going to be interviewing you, and to build empathy for them, and to get familiar with the product. If it's the type of product you can download and start using and interact with, obviously get familiar with it, start using it, form opinions about what's good and bad about the product, and ask very detailed questions about the product. And depending on the stage of the company, asking all sorts of questions about their burn rate, what what the what's going on with funding, what are the biggest challenges, asking about the roadmap, and just asking really thoughtful questions. Besides answering the questions well, I really take note of what questions can. Candidates are asking me, and it helps me prioritize which candidates to pass through to next rounds. Yeah. So you you mentioned you know leveraging the you know connections you've had.、Um, can you share a bit more? Like how did you make those connections, and then how do you you know reach out and ask for you know help or referrals or anything like that? I'm. Lucky to have been working in Houston in a time when product wasn't very common in Houston, and so I they were coming to me. Asking me to join, so I didn't have to ask any favors, and I don't think that that'll happen to everyone. It was kind of before product had blown up and become really common, and so、uh, there just weren't that many product people around. The other way I made myself known and kind of built my own personal clout is I got involved with a different with startup accelerators, and I was a mentor to different entrepreneurs. Most CEOs and entrepreneurs of early stage startups are product people. Whether or not they're formally trained, whether or not they think they're a product person, they are a product person, and so they needed a lot of product advice. And so I was able to get to know a lot of different entrepreneurs, and then they would talk about me. And so then I ended up getting hired by the friend of a friend of someone who I had mentored through one of these programs. You, you mentioned startups. So what are some of the similarities and differences between a CEO and a and a you know product manager? Great question, and I'm very passionate about this. And I think one of the most common misconceptions about product managers is that for, because Ben Horowitz, who I think is brilliant, wrote this、um, "Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager." Have you have you read this? Yeah.、Sure. Okay. So in there, he says that the the product manager is the CEO of the product. Okay, and there's a lot in this good product manager, bad product manager that's very valuable. I completely disagree. I don't think the product manager is the CEO at all. And basically, the buck doesn't stop with them. So here's an article I just sent you that's all about why the product manager is not the CEO of anything, and it comes down to influence and authority. So. I do not directly manage the engineers. I do not directly manage. The CTO. I don't directly manage the whole operations team. I don't directly manage anybody except for maybe some product people. And that's if 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 you were just to say one difference, that's the main difference. But it's about soft influence and trying to influence without authority, where the CEO actually has a ton of authority and doesn't have to influence without authority. Yeah. What What about similarities in terms of like how they approach problems and how they think through some of the you know decision making process? Well, great product managers and great CEOs should 
think similarly, which is with design thinking, empathetic, really understanding the whole business and thinking through the impact of decisions. So maybe you're making this one person happy, but what's the downstream impact on your P&L? Or, you know, what's the negative impact? And then making trade-offs. So really successful CEOs understand that if there's too many priorities, that the team is not going to be successful and they will actively deprioritize things. And product managers need to do that as well. And of course, the, the the classic overlap is vision casting and being this carrier of the vision and really motivating and inspiring the team around you to do the work of what you're building towards. So is there anything that you know college students or aspiring product managers can do to kind of you know train themselves um, to, to think like a CEO or think like a PM? For thinking like a CEO, I'd say taking some sort of finance class and really exposing yourself to P&L and, and accounting and just jargon around business and how to run the business and how to balance the books and, and just being really familiar with, with that aspect of the finances. On, on the product side, beefing up your analytical skills, making sure that you're very comfortable doing some quick analysis in Excel, maybe learning some SQL, getting familiar with some sort of some sort of coding. You don't, you're not going to learn it all. You'll never stay up to date. It's okay. But having manipulated an HTML email before and just kind of seeing what happens whenever you break this one part of the padding and how everything breaks and it'll help you empathize with the engineers better. Training up in some sort of design thinking and practicing with design thinking. Maybe this is something anybody can do. Just practice user tests. So choose an app, maybe it's Spotify, maybe it's Google Maps, and just watch someone use it. See where they click, note where they don't click, see where they have questions, understand where they have problems, and start familiarizing yourself with how to do user interviews and really understand what people are going through whenever they're using different products. Awesome. Um, So if if you were to interview a product candidate, uh, what traits would you be looking for on that person? One of the most important traits that I look for is a growth mindset. And so it's someone who understands that they aren't innately perfect and that they have a lot to learn and that they they can always be improving and learning. And I am not have never been in a position where I could I had a big enough organization where I could hire a product person straight out of school. It's not practical. You product management in general is a senior position within the organization. And I think it's kind of strange how many undergrads think they can get into this role. And I just don't think it's the right role to start in. I don't think I wouldn't recommend anyone target that role, but the, the industry is changing and, you know, it, it could be different. And I think especially in really big organizations, it makes more sense, but in a small startup, I would not start in product. You should start in somewhere like a marketing or operations or sales operations, um, finance, design, engineering. There's a lot of other places to start. On the other hand, are, are there any reflects that you would suggest um, people avoid during the interview? I mean, it's important in all interviews to be authentic. And if there's any sort of indication that the person's not being authentic or that the person is hard to work with or doesn't know how to build rapport. Um, one of my favorite things that, okay, here's something that might not be intuitive. So in the interviews I've done recently, I'm asking intentionally hard questions just to watch the person fail and see what happens when they fail. And some people, whenever they failed, they couldn't admit it. And whenever I started to describe to them what the answer was or try to teach them something, they would interrupt me and they were incapable of listening to my idea. And that is an immediate deal breaker if the person isn't capable of listening to someone else's perspective. 
it's not intuitive because a lot of product people might want to assert, no, I can solve this, or I can talk my way out of anything, or I've got an answer for anything and that sort of thing. And no, what I'm really testing for is, are you teachable? So you mentioned, you know, big companies and, and startups um, for a college new grad, um, you know, should they focus on applying for, for positions in big firms like Google, Amazon, Facebook, that kind of stuff? Or should they, you know, also take a, a good percentage of time to, to think about whether they want to um, work at a startup to get that exposure first? I, I think it, it's really, so, so the upside of a startup is you learn more, you learn faster, and you get potential equity. The downside of a startup is it's uncertain. And you don't know if the startup will be around in a couple of years. And you're not necessarily joining a team that's going to teach you good habits. So the upside of joining a Google or something like that is that you'll form good habits. You'll make very good pay, but you're going to be in a silo. You're going to be in this one corner and you're only going to be thinking about this one particular part of the business. And so you're going to miss this global view. And so I don't think it's... I think it depends on personality. I think it depends on risk tolerance. And I think it depends on background and, and, and intended path ahead. I personally never want to be an entrepreneur and have no intention of starting my own business. And so for someone with a trajectory like me, maybe it's fine to just start at Google. You don't need to be in a scrappy startup to really see what happens in the early stages of the startup. But if someone is an entrepreneur and they absolutely want to do that, they probably need to see both. They need to go work at a big company and steal all their big processes and, and how they scaled. But they also need to go and watch someone else fail a few, few times. Yeah. Um, can, can you elaborate on why you don't want to be an entrepreneur? Because like, I know a lot of um, product managers are doing product stuff because they eventually want to start their own company. Um, I value my personal time. I, I, I work so that I have the funds to live a great life. I don't live to work. And I have just the amount of blood, sweat and tears that goes into being a founder is just not something I'm interested in. One last question in this session. Um, what would you do differently if you were to restart your career again? I don't know that I would really do anything differently. The I really like where I've ended up. I feel like a whole bunch of serendipitous moments and connections and people have brought me to this really great place. I think, I guess the main thing I do differently is not sell my stock. I would have held on to my Home Depot stock that I got and I'd hold on to more stocks and I'd buy all the options and, and just keep all those. Um, the other thing I do differently is get more design training earlier on. I wish I had learned how to use Figma and Balsamic or all these different prototyping apps earlier and not always delegated that to designers, but really owned that process a little bit more. Awesome. Awesome. Um, moving into the you know last part of the episode, um, first question is um, what kind of resources uh, would you recommend for aspiring product managers? Then um, this could be, you know, product related books or just for entertainment like Netflix or YouTube. Sure. So 
I personally can't watch Silicon Valley because it hits too close to home, but I do think it has a lot of really valuable and fun lessons in it. And I think Silicon Valley is a nice lightweight um, introduction into the tech world. Um, so that's one. There are a ton of resources that I can send you that you can share, but the books that I like to recommend are Inspired by Marty Kagan, Drive by Daniel Pink, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, and Escaping the Build Trap by Melissa Perry. Those are the four books that I really like to recommend. You've probably heard them all recommended before. Uh, there's another company that's really fun to look at called IDEO. And they put out, there's this, this YouTube video, this, this nightline news. It's this thing from the like early 90s or something called IDEO with the shopping carts. Have you seen this video? I can send it to you. Um, it's a nice video that's worth looking at. But basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to email you a list of all of the resources that I share with my students. Yeah, that's awesome. That'd be great. And ProductCon is awesome. It's free. I'm trying to think of something that might, oh, here's an article that someone has not recommended to you before. You know, this unlocked so much for me is this article by Paul Graham called The Maker Versus the Manager Schedule. Mm -hmm. the really understanding what the difference between a maker and manager schedule is and mostly not crushing engineers with poorly timed meetings is a huge unlock and a really important thing for engineer or product managers to understand. Great. Um, so moving towards the, you know, we have a, a lightning round in the, in the end where I just asked the same question to everyone. Um, and first question is what's your favorite consumer facing product? Probably Spotify. I love Spotify. I listen to it all the time. It helps me introduce, it helps me learn more music. It helped me create an awesome wedding playlist and collaborate with a DJ. It helps me stay in touch with what my husband's listening to. I, I love Spotify. It recommends really great tunes for me. Awesome. Uh, what's one of your short-term or long-term goals? A short-term personal professional development goal I have is to get better at design. So I've signed up through Coursera to start taking a Figma course so that I understand basic design principles and I become just a better design-oriented thinker so that I can give better feedback to designers and think more critically about the, the UI we're launching. All right. Um, what gets you excited these days? I'm very excited to be growing my product team and to be having the opportunity to grow the team and to be bringing more people on and to be hiring and the whole recruiting, hiring, because I'm a startup, I'm doing it all process is pretty motivating. Awesome. Uh, one last one. What mediocre superpower do you wish to have? Going back to my short-term goals, I want to be better at design sort of thing. And so I guess the superpower would be being able to draw better. Yeah. Just being a better artist, being able to draw. If I have an idea, just being able to quickly whip it out. I I come from a family of artists. There's art all over my apartment, all over my walls from my family. And I love art and I really appreciate it. And so, you know, being able to be a better artist would help me both in my professional work, but also I think it would give me great satisfaction for my personal life. <laughs> great. Um, that will be the end of the episode. Um, before we sign off, where can our listeners connect with you on the internet? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. My last name's Tiger, T-Y-G-E-R, Carol, C-A-R-O-L, T-Y-G-E-R. I'm pretty easy to find. Great. For the ones listening, thank you so much for tuning in. The books and resources mentioned in the episode will be attached in the show notes on the landing page. Feel free to check it out, subscribe, or leave a comment so that I can improve and produce better content for you. All right, listeners, thank you so much. 
See you next time.